There is no bigger warrior than the guest that we have on today. Before MMA was in fast food commercials and beer ads, it was martial artists, warriors, testing their strength. And no one exemplified these ideals more than the Yamato Damashi himself. Myself and Ash are extremely humbled to have such an amazing fighter on the show. Ensign Inoue, how are you doing today, sir? Good, man. Really good. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, we are pumped to have you on the show. Man, you know what? You've done media for like 25 years in the MMA industry, more than 25 years now. What questions are you sick of being asked, Ensign? Uh, nothing, really. It's uh, it's all, always a different uh, approach to a question. It doesn't really matter. It's probably... Uh, I'm probably not going to be asked a question I haven't answered yet. So, yeah, let him roll. <laughs> so let, let let me try and see if I could think of something yeah, that you've not been asked. But obviously, you know, you mentioned that you're basically you're basically ready to you know kind of kill or die yeah, in every single fight going, uh, you know, that you go into. Uh, did you have to develop that mentality, or was it something that you had right from the start in your first ever fight? Well, it's a mentality I had from the start because when I went into the sport, it wasn't a sport. It was more like a street fight. So we were going in the ring not because there were sponsors or belts or, you know, any type of uh, way to uh, make a living. It was more just about testing yourself, getting in the ring, challenging yourself. So when you're when you're in there doing that, you know, they didn't have like you could hit the back of the head. You know, there wasn't rules on you can't stomp or or soccer ball kick. So there's all these uh, like a street fight. So when you when you go into a street fight, you know, you can't. There's no tapping. Yeah. So you're you're but- basically going in there to kill or be killed. So that's kind of what kind of got me into that that state of mind when I whenever I fought, I saw it as a street fight. But but in reality, it was a street fight, and you were trying to test yourself, and you were you fought with a warrior spirit. But you were also one of the more disciplined people who used martial arts as a base. It was like you you were going into a street fight, ready to die, fight anyone attitude. But you were an incredible martial artist as well, right? Yeah, well, the, the, I was lucky because in Hawaii, there's a lot of street fights. So I used to train different types of martial arts to protect myself in the streets. And of course, when I got into the ring, for me, it was still on, like, I felt like it was a controlled street fight. So, you know, if you're going to go in the ring and you're going to, you're planning to fight to the death or kill or be killed, by all means, you want to walk out of the ring alive. So I did a, a proper training because I wanted to defend myself well, and come out alive, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of a weird, like, Going from A to B, you move to Japan to get into racquetball, and then you're, you're then you're working in Valley Tudu, no holds barred. You're working in street fights. How did you go from racquetball to street fights? Like I don't think anyone else in history has done that conversion before. Well, I was a racquetball player, and I was living in Japan playing racquetball. I uh, I actually uh, started taking over one of Egan's uh, racquetball companies, E Force. So I just ran it for about four years and. When it got real sturdy, I just thought that, you know, I'd go back to Hawaii because my heart was in Hawaii. I wanted, I loved the beaches, I loved surfing, I loved the night diving. So I was an ocean boy. I was in the ocean every single day. So I wanted to get back. And uh, when I decided to go back, all I decided to is um, I wanted to get in the ring, you know, just to feel that anxiety, just to test myself, just to put myself in a situation where I would have to grow and become stronger as a man to to be able to work through it. So 
that's the only reason why I got in the ring. It was not something I was going to do more than one fight. It wasn't something I considered was going to be a career. It was just something it was one time, just give it a shot and try it out, you know? So you mentioned anxiety, yeah? So I, I really like the fact that you mentioned that because that actually is a great segue to the anxiety question we always ask fighters. And, um, you know, obviously you've gone through anxiety. Does that go, does that lessen as your fighting career went on or did it never go away? And what was your coping mechanisms for dealing with that anxiety as well? It never went away. Uh, the way I dealt with the anxiety is um, I just trained as hard as I could. So, you know, knowing, feeling that you're you're 100% ready for what you're going to into, whether whether or not the opponent's going to be better than you or not and going to have more than you or not. I, for myself, knew as who Ensign Inouye was, I was as prepared as I could be. So that helps with anxiety. You know, the, the, the worry about, oh, I should have trained a little harder. I, should have, I shouldn't have took so much days off. That kind of stuff will add to anxiety. So <clears throat> I think I trained very hard. So my anxiety was at a level that was always uh, pretty much the same. It never went away, but it never really got to a point where it overcame me and, and the jitters and the, the anxiety took over. It, it's yeah, and it's kind of. We were talking about this with another kind of a legacy fighter with Frank Shamrock, and said fighting. It's a weird thing. Anxiety is always before the fight, but in the ring or in the cage, yeah, these people find peace in fighting. Do you relate to that idea? Yeah, I mean, there's so much happening. It's like there's no more thinking. You pretty much got to react. It's all the training you put into the gym. It's it's uh it's just got to flow now. It's it's either going to happen or not, and you don't have time. You don't have time to worry. You don't have time to think. The guy's coming at you. You got to react, and either you know either do or die. <laughs> you you've always had this like you know again as we mentioned, kill or die mentality. Um, I remember I was watching rewatching some of your fights as well, and there was one in particular with Mark uh, where you've got death uh, on the back of your head, and uh, like. Where did that stem from? Like, where did that where did that stem from? Is it something that you've always had, or because uh, I want well, to Barker? Well, I when you all my fights that I've taken, I I you know today today I hear all the fighters you know saying this kind of stuff like, oh, I can beat them in the second round, I can beat them in the first round. I don't think I've ever took a fighter thinking I could beat them. I always took a fighter that I thought would break me or would put wow. me into that you know put me into that fear zone that I would want to quit. So I wanted to put myself in that zone. And Mark Kerr, when I decided to fight, you know, Mark Kerr, you know, you remember how he looked, his body, like they called him the specimen. Smash machine, man. 250 Yeah, and he he just went, he was so overpowered, everybody. And the thing I remember the most was when he, the last fight I saw him fight was in Pride. He fought Hugo Dorte. And when I, Ugo Duarte for us jiu-jitsu people was like a beast because he's the only one that challenged Hickson on the beach and actually got Hickson in the mount in the beginning. I mean, you can't see it clear on the tape, but I, you, if you really watch the tape well, he mounted Hickson in the beginning. So, you know, Ugo Duarte was one of the Luta Livre, the enemy of jiu-jitsu, the biggest beast and the scariest dude. But this guy got disqualified from from being broken by Mark Kerr and running out of the ring too many times. 
You know, so for me, when I saw, I remember watching that, it was in Tokyo Dome. I remember watching it in the nosebleed seats. Yeah. And I remember looking at that, watching that fight and watching that Ugo. I mean, I thought Ugo Dorothy was going to win because I thought Ugo Dorothy, he's a beast. And to see what he did and to see Mark Kerr do that to him, it, for me, I was like, I got I to gotta feel that. I got I to gotta fight Mark Kerr. So for me, Mark Kerr was, I think, I, I think I just beat Randy too. So there was talk about who's the best fight in the world. Yeah. And I was lucky that my name was actually thrown into that, that discussion. And it was pretty much Ensign and Mark Kerr. And so I felt that, you know, Mark Kerr was so much bigger than me. I think he was like 50 pounds heavier than me. And I felt that, you know, he's going to be my ultimate test. And I felt that I'm ready to die. And that's why I had I, I had the word death uh, put into the back of my head. It wasn't about Mark Kerr. Everyone thinks it was, I'm going to kill Mark Kerr. No, it wasn't that. It was, yeah, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die. So that's why I put death in the back of my head. Kill or die, man. That's the mentality. Um, yeah. So you fought a lot of wrestlers, and I've, I've, you know, I saw this. Both me and Tim, I saw this in the, you know, Rogan podcast years and years ago, where you mentioned wrestlers just didn't have any, you know, jujitsu back then. And uh, there was a guy, Royce Alger, that you fought. You submitted as well, and he comes from a great uh, wrestling lineage. Uh, Dan Gable as well, if I'm if I'm correct there. Um, so you you beat him by submission. You beat. Uh, Randy Couture by submission. Why did wrestlers jiu-jitsu just suck? Is it just something that they just didn't train with back then? No, I think wrestlers were so strong at taking down and getting on top and their movement was so good. I think they they got away with a lot because wrestlers were so natural that you know they could actually avoid some jiu-jitsu submissions because their movement was so well. And I I I really took pride in my armbar. I had a really good armbar from the bottom. And I, I just felt that wrestlers just didn't understand or haven't really been in a situation where they're being armbarred by someone that was a real good technical armbar submission technician. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I didn't really choose wrestlers. It just so happened that wrestlers were the ones that seemed to really um, make me, you know, I, I, I see the wrestler there. I, I fought Randy. He was a heavyweight champ at the time. You know, before that, it, my opponent was supposed to be Dan Severin. Oh wow! But Dan Severin had a progressing uh, obligation, so became Randy. So uh, for some reason, all my opponents that they threw at me were wrestlers. Even Mustafa Abdul was a wrestler. A lot of wrestlers, yeah. So I don't know. It, it, the wrestlers just seemed to come into my into my into my uh, you know my line of competition, and it just so happened that you know. They they don't they didn't understand armbars. They do now, but yeah, yeah. they didn't understand armbars back then. So yeah, at the time that that makes a lot of sense. You were working with you were ahead of the game at the time, and you mentioned Dan Severn. There was other guys of this time, like um, like Tank Abbott's Randy Couture is another example of guys of this era who just love fighting and never quit. A lot of these guys had the problem that they stayed in the game far too long. What was your reason for stepping away from fighting? It's something you clearly love and are passionate about. Well, my um, my whole objective in fighting was to build myself as a person, to become a stronger man. And that's why when I pick all the fights, I pick the fights that I thought was going to make me a stronger man. So, you know, if you, if you have fight someone that you're, you're better than and you can beat, it doesn't you don't gain anything besides your name and reputation and, you know, that, that vic- feeling of victory. For me, the victory 
in my heart wasn't winning or losing in the ring by getting your hand raised. My victory and losing, victory and defeat was about if you could push yourself to the very end. So w- whether I win or lose, if I could go 100% and give 100% to the, to the, I get knocked out or I get submitted or if I go to sleep, then I believe I won the fight. So, you know, that was my whole main objective. And if you know, um, when I fought Igor, it was uh, probably the worst beating I've ever had. You know, I, I had a perforated eardrum. I had a broken jaw, broken finger. I had a perf- um, I had a um, liver count um, 2,000 times a normal person. And I had a swollen brain. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and, and if you watch the fight, I mean, I, I went into the fear zone and I stood toe-to-toe with Igor. He threw me to the ground. So that was a victory in itself. And then the the... I remember getting hit by, I remember, I also remember the exact punch that perforated my eardrum. I remember I was getting really damaged and I could feel the damage happening. But not once in the fight did I feel like I, I don't want to be here. Not once in the fight I tried to find a way out. So for me, I, I just felt that the damage that I had, I didn't realize, you know, I thought I could fight. You know, I thought I cut him in the first round when the second round came and the doctor tried to wear him off the fight. I was screaming no because I wanted more time to be recover before he made that decision. And I felt I I cut him up. I'm gonna we're gonna start standing. I didn't realize that my equilibrium was off so badly because of my perfect eardrum. And I didn't realize that the next time I could actually walk and go to the bathroom by myself was actually five days later. Wow. Yeah. So you know, with the amount of damage that I went through, and I was in intensive care for the first two days. I had a wow. 24-hour nurse sitting at my room. And, you know, I just felt that, you know, I don't think the human body could actually go through that much more damage. Yeah. That, and, I, and I felt that there's nothing more that MMA can teach me. So that so was one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons why I felt like, you know, there's nothing more for me to gain in MMA. There was no money. There was no fame. It wasn't about that. It was about testing myself. And I felt that I, I went through the ultimate test and I passed with flying colors. The yeah. other reason why I also retired was because um, this thing about the situation I'm putting myself in every time in the ring. When you're um, accepting death, you're training for three months for the fight, training as hard as you can because you don't want to die. Before the fight, you're writing letters to all the people that you care about because you might die in the ring and you might not be able to say your farewell. So all the people that you... I mean, I wasn't afraid about dying. I was afraid about how I'm going to leave the people that I cared about. So I wrote letters to everybody. And, you know, if you ever found out, like if someone had told you, dude, you're going to die in Hawaii, by all means, you're going to stay away from Hawaii, right? Because you're not ready to die yet. You know, so it's like, I'm not going to go to Hawaii. If my destiny is to die in Hawaii. I'll go to Hawaii maybe 20 years later or 30 years later and take my chances then. I'm not going to go next year. You know, so, you know, but 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 for me, I accepted that I was going to die in that 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 square ring that's lit up and has thousands of people watching, I admitted to myself that I'm going to die and I'm walking there with my own power, with my yeah. own my own choice. The stress doing that, the stress of preparing everything you're doing in your life to, to know that this day might be your last day. Mm. That was a little bit too much for me. Did you yeah, did you ever feel like you know I mean ninety nine point nine 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 percent of people on the planet Earth would probably tap to that um, you know in the eagle fight because that was you know just showed you how tough you are your chin is 
10 out yeah, of 10. You know what it is? Yeah, it's not about, you know, people think it, that I was super tough. That's why I never tapped. But it's not about toughness. It's about the, um, it's about the mindset. If, if I plan to walk in a casino and I don't want to lose more than $1,000 and I'm losing 800 I start getting scared. But if I walk into the casino planning to lose ten grand, I lose two grand. It's not a big deal. You walk into a ring thinking, "Okay, I'm willing to, you know, push myself and maybe get hurt, but I don't want any broken bones. By by all means, I don't want to die. If you're getting your arm broken, you're gonna freak out and you're gonna tap out. I was prepared to die. I was prepared to the most ultimate. So a broken arm or going to sleep wasn't anything that would bring any red flags in my head, you know. So. That was one thing, and I think my mindset, my, my my mind, my focus was so strong that you 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 know you ever thought of why fighters tap? Did you guys ever think of that? I would assume it's not get pain. Out of- it's not pain. It's 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 the anticipation of what you think is going to happen, and wow. then by anticipating that, it creates a whole big rush of fear <clears throat> and that fear creates you to tap because of the anticipation so when i'm getting choked out by somebody i'm not anticipating going to sleep i'm anticipating getting out of the choke i'm anticipating i'm 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 focusing on how i'm going to get out of this choke when nagura had me in the dark triangle i wasn't thinking about oh fuck i'm going to go to sleep if he holds it too long i might die you know if that's the case i would tap but my mindset was more on okay Open up your arm. Open up that vessel. Relax, relax. Get some air. And then while I was doing that, I fell asleep. And it kind of makes sense as well to focus on the positive. Because even, I remember the, the, even in the pride fight after, um, I can't remember now, but there was, yeah, actually it was Nagara. So they they did an interview before and um, you're mentioning about the eagle fight and you go, it didn't actually hurt. Like it didn't hurt. It just felt like I was getting jarred in a car accident. Like, you know, just getting jarred a little bit. Um, it didn't actually hurt, you know, it, it's, you know, I was, uh, I was still game, man. And um, it kind of makes sense in that sense. But going to Eagle, uh, how was it fighting like a monster like that, man? Is he the biggest power puncher you've ever faced? Yeah, I'm, I, you know, he was the scariest puncher because before the, the moment I wanted to fight Igor was because I saw him knock out Francesco Bueno. Yeah. And Fra- Francesco Bueno's a big boy. Yeah, and Igor turned his lights out with one right hook, and on the way down, I, he swung a couple huge punches. And I think he hit him with a left. Yeah, I remember on that. the way down, while Francisco's eyes are still rolled back, he falls on the mat, and his his wife or girlfriend is about five seats away from me in the front row, and she's screaming bloody murder because he's not moving. I mean that, seeing that happen right in front of my eyes, I was like, oh my God, that fear of being in front of those punches has got to, it's got to bring so much anxiety. And that's where I was like, I want to fight Igor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) And then of course, training for Igor, everyone's, you know, my, everyone was thinking I should take him down, get on top because my ground was better than his. But for me, I was like, man, no, I want to stand toe-to-toe with this guy. I want to see what that that feels like. I want to see what my, my heart will do. I want to see what the anxiety will do to me. And I actually had the chance to do that. 
how do you balance that attitude and then you're teaching other people martial arts? I assume that's not the attitude you instill in others, or is that something like embrace the fear or run from the fear? How do you teach that kind of ideas to other people that you've been working with? Well, if the if I notice the fighter is like me, then I can teach him that. I can, you know, it's it's those it's it's those really hard times in training, you know, training you break yourself in training, and it's those little words and those little comments you can put into his head at that crucial time when he's about to break in training. That's how you can help him. You know, it's a, a little bit harder for me because I'm training uh one of the ex sumo wrestlers now, Sudario Siofi, and he's more of a sportsman. You know, he, he's a type where he doesn't want to get hurt. He wants to pick fights that he will win. And at the first sign of trouble, he'll freak out and tap. You know, so for me, it's a, it's a, it's a good learning lesson for me because I'm learning how to teach someone like that because I can't instill what I think because it won't resonate with him. But so it's hard. It's easier to teach people when they're in the same mindset as you, but yeah, teaching yes. people who have a different mindset, you, it's hard to communicate. You don't have the same ideas, but let me ask you, I love sumo wrestling. I, I got into sumo wrestling recently. Are you calling up a uh, Hakuo? Is he going to get into MMA? Are you going to train the big boy next? No, actually I didn't really reach out to this guy. Uh, one of the ex sumo wrestlers, uh, one of my um, classmates, uh, Saliva Tisanoi Konishiki, he reached out to me, told me that this kid is uh, got just got kicked out of sumo. He wants to fight, but he doesn't know where to go. So I, you know, he asked me, can you train him? And I was like, yeah, we had like a month before the next fight. And I said, yeah. He actually came in and lived with me because we only had a month. So I said, if you really want to get ready, we need to train every day. Yeah. So he came and lived in. And, you know, I, I was just going to do that as a favor to Saleh, to Konishiki. And that's it. You know, I'm not, I was training my wife. That's it. Other than that, I don't enjoy training people. Mm-hmm. So... After that fight, you know, he turned and he said he doesn't want to train under anyone else but me. So that's how that happened, yeah. And he, I know, he gave me that he gave me that whole spew about you know Yamato Damashi and you know he's ready to die in the ring and that kind of stuff. And you know, I I didn't know you. It's hard to tell when you're not with a person for a long time. And one of his fights, he just lost. He he just freaked out and tapped. And I just realized that okay, now this is how I have to train. I have to learn how to train him differently now. So, you know, it's a learning process for me. And I think me coaching now is, is, is a chance for me to learn and to grow as a person in that sense. Amazing. You've always had this, you know, ready to die mentality. Um, and it's like a perfect segue to my next question. So now in terms of MMA, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like what's going on. I mean, if you're still following up with MMA and everything else. I, but- I follow it every day. Nice. Um, but you, you know, it's completely changed in terms of how promotion is done and how everything is done. So a perfect example is this uh, is Sugar Sean O'Malley, who's actually publicly said, I'm not going to fight anyone that, you know, like who's that good. who's going to challenge me too much. I'm just going to, you know, ride it out uh, to the end of my contract and hope to get paid a little bit more. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Obviously, it's a very different kind of mindset as you as a veteran pride. Well, it's a it's a um, different whole different mentality because they're bring, brought up in a whole different time. Yeah, you know, for us, we, there was no fame or money, so I can't say that. Oh, these guys are so material. They're fighting for money. They're fighting for fame. I can't say. I can't look down on these people because I never had that. Who knows if in my day, if we had a lot of money and a lot of fame, 
who knows if I would want to fight for those things. Maybe I, the, you know, the, the sparkle and glitter of the money and the belts and the fame might overshine the fact that I just want to test myself. There was nothing else in MMA. It was, in fact, it was called No Horse Bar. There was nothing. There yeah, was no money. So all the guys that was getting into that, they were either a little bit off or they had a deeper meaning of testing yourself as a martial artist. So, you know, I can't say that, you know, these persons aren't as, aren't a martial artist like me because I'm not in the same situation as them. They're not in the same situation as me. You know, I, I believe a lot of these fighters nowadays would not be fighting if it was like our day because not only there was there no money and, and there was no fame, there was also, um, there was also a, a, a very small understanding of what this sport was. This sport was so un, un, misunderstood. It was like human cockfighting. You know, it was like too dangerous, too crazy, barbaric, you know. So, you know, it's a, it's a real difference. So, you know, like, you know, Sean's fighting in that way and it has that idea. But, you know, it's, it's you got a whole spectrum of fighters now and different ideas and attitudes because it's a sport. And, you know, sometimes now it's more moving more towards entertainment more than a sport. So when you when you have that aspect thrown into it, you know, you're going to have guys still like Khabib that are fighting as warriors, you know. Guys like Michael Chandler that's ready to just, you know, Justin Gaethje, you know. Yeah. But then you're going to have guys like that that, you know, just want to fight and win. You know, want to fight and come out safe, want to fight and, you know, don't get too hurt and, and make as much money as they can. And take off, you know, and, and hats off to that. You know, everyone to each his own. You know, everyone has their own ideas and their own uh, things that turn them on. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And now we are kind of in the money era in terms of fighting. We are fighting for money, and we all know it. And fighting, or fighting, is a good way to make money in terms of celebrity YouTube boxing is kind of the trend right now. It's kind of the thing. Ensign, if you were to step back in the ring. Would you be interested in celebrity YouTube boxing? And let me throw some names your way and see if any of these bad boys interest you. A Bob Sapp, a Mike Tyson exhibition, a Fedor Emelianenko. Is this something that you could be, for money, get back in the ring? Or are you totally done at this point? Well, the second name you said, Mike Tyson, hell no. (laughs) (laughs) He moves really good yet. Yeah, he still <laughs> he still moves good at his age. He's like sixty million years old. <laughs> I think he's uh he thinks I think he's a, a year older than me, so he's fifty four or fifty five right now. Gotcha. I think he's like months older than me, so he's a little he gets he turns fifty five a little sooner than me. So yeah, yeah. No, um, yeah, I think I would be interested in it to test myself, especially as a mixed martial artist. Our our pro, our our forte is in boxing. It isn't necessarily standing. It's not necessarily ground. It's it's everything. So we're we're like the Navy SEALs. We're a jack of all trades. You know, we're we're jack of all trades, masters of none. You know, so yeah. Um, you know, that's what happens when you you know. There's so much that you have to cover in mixed martial arts. You know, boxers work only on their hands. They're they're hundred percent better than us. So I think that would have uh, definitely um, interested me. Um, whether it. You know, I mean, right now I'm thinking as uh, the retired ensign, fuck if I want to fight Mike Tyson. But <laughs> I could see myself back in that day being a little bit attracted to, you know, being on, at the edge of that and seeing seeing what, how that would feel, you know. So I think that ensign now, 
I'm not interested in any type of fighting. I watch fights and I don't have this. You know, my wife's still a um, she's still an active fighter. Hey. So, so she's uh, she watches fights and wants to go out and train in the garage that night. Nice. I watch some fights and I want to go freaking uh, go lay down and get a massage, go get you know get some popcorn and go to sleep after the fights. You know. <laughs> so, you know, that's me because when the UK now, man, no, I, I don't, I, I don't want to break my hands fighting bare knuckles. You know, boxing <laughs> in a celebrity. I don't know if I could last more than thirty seconds in the ring right now. You know, but the instant back then, definitely. Yeah, I mean, definitely bare knuckle. You know, um, celebrity boxing. That all that stuff would not because of the money, but because I would probably want to challenge myself, and I probably wouldn't want to fight someone like a Jake Paul. I would want to probably fight someone that, you know, like someone that I wouldn't be able to beat, like a Tyson Fury, you know. <laughs> of course, of course, I'd be more intellectual about it. Like for me, in my martial arts career, to say I want to go fight Mike Tyson at his prime or Tyson Fury at his prime is not what I probably would do because I, of course, I do want it to challenge myself, but I would challenge myself intellectually. You know, I fought, wanted to fight Mark Kerr because I felt I was very versed in MMA. Mm-hmm. So if I, I fought boxing, it'd probably be like a a, a more of a, a higher ranked uh, mediocre boxer that would really test myself. Not not I don't know if I'd go like for Mike Tyson or not. I, I definitely wouldn't be interested in a YouTuber. <laughs> I get that. What about on the other side? I know that you had worked quite closely with Sakuraba in the past, and he's still working in submission grappling with his quintet shows. Mm-hmm. Is that something that could interest you a little bit more? Maybe not quintet specifically, but just working with Sakuraba in some way. Yeah, um, I'm. You know, I, I'm doing right now. I'm doing a lot of. Uh, I'm making bracelets. You know, I'm, I have a yeah. bracelet. I'm, I'm, I'm real passionate in that, so I really enjoy that. I raise koi's and I, I, I'm real passionate in that too. I my passion isn't fighting. My passion isn't you know martial arts anymore. I I do enjoy watching it as a fan. I I have interest in it because I train people and because my wife is an active fighter. Well, other than that, you know, I'd be more happy with just watch staying home, watching the UFC every weekend. You know, I you know as far as uh, being more involved, in being a promoter, or I I. I I wa- I'd rather use my time shopping for power stones. I'd rather use my time driving up to Niigata, which is about three hours away, and vi- visiting some of the best koi farms in in the world. You know, uh, you know, I my 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 heart is somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I got when you when you first retired, I mean, a lot of fighters they go through a bit of an adjustment period. Some get quite depressed, or you know, some find it very uh, difficult to almost adapt to civilian life because you know ultimately mma training is you know even khabib said it's like being a bit of a prisoner you know you're training non-stop you're, you're sleeping you're eating uh, and that's it was it a bit of an adjustment period for you um you know going away from fighting that is i think for me um because of the the mentality i had of life and death i think for me it was more of a relief so I was like in this fire and wondering when I was going to die in the fire. And I finally stepped out of the fire. There was just, there was this big relief that, you know, it wasn't like I had to adjust. It was like, I was, I enjoyed not having to train every day. I enjoyed not having to push myself to the limits and see what I can do. You know, I enjoyed not waking up every day and seeing if I could break myself in training, you know, (laughs) 
it was really nice just to wake up and you know not really worry about you know being being comfortable with the man that I am now and just enjoying my life. And and you've done some pretty awesome things since that time. You wrote a book, Live as a Die, Die as a Man, Become a Man. You also, uh, like you said, you're working on your Destiny Forever bracelets, which look awesome, by the way. And I'll put the link down below for everybody right. there. Uh, the t-shirts, which is going on at Tico, and I'll put the link down there. But also the Ensign Inouye Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Ensign Inouye Foundation and what it does and what its goals are? Yeah, I um, I find joy in helping others. And I believe that the the true joy of happiness is not the happiness of receiving, but the happiness of giving. It's unfortunate that when we're children, we're taught that the the greatest happiness in life is receiving gifts. So, you know, the day that's supposed to be your special day, your birthday, people bring you presents because you're supposed to be happy getting presents. But in life, there you know, unfortunately, there are people that live and die still believing that. But I'm lucky enough to have experienced a lot of things in my life that I realized that the true happiness in life is the happiness of giving. And so, you know, my whole my whole first taste of it was when they had the big tsunami and earthquake in Japan. And, you know, a lot of people were leaving Japan because, of, you know, the, the radiation and, you know, a lot of people were, um, you know, choosing to get further away from the area. But, you know, something hit me and I decided to head up to, to the area. I mean, I headed up there when they were, the roads were still unstable. Gasoline was still hard to get. So I had to, you know, the, the drive up was really hard because you had, the highways was closed because of cracks. So I had to get on and off, on and off, on and off. And when I got on the, on the highway, there was no cars. There was all army trucks and police cars. There was no regular cars. I was one of the few regular cars on there of course i was in a hummer so it wasn't like a really a regular car so i blended in well got to the area and you know what was really amazing was the tsunami was something that you you oh the only place it's destroyed until is where the wave hits mm. so it's not like an earthquake where the epic center and then as you get further the, the damage is gradually getting less the tsunami is different man the tsunami is a hundred percent everything's fine. You take that one turn and you turn into the area where the waves hit and everything is demolished. It's like you can, you can draw a line and on the right side of the line, everything's perfect. The left side of the line, everything's demolished. It was incredible. And went up there and, you know, there was army trucks. What was happening when I went up there was they were still trying to make their fine bodies and they were trying to make roads so that they can take out and move all the bodies out. So when I went up there that first time, you know, I, I, I went in to check a friend. He was okay. He brought me to a, a temporary housing, temporary evacuation center. Mm-hmm. Went there and these people literally ran out of the houses with their shoes on their feet. And some of them without even their shoes on their feet, just the clothes on their back. Went in there and they're living in cardboard boxes. And, you know, I, I went in there and I got to know the people really well after about a week of going to the evacuation center every day to visit them and bring them little supplies. They started opening up to me. They asked me for shoes. They gave me their sizes. I went to buy shoes. And it's it's amazing. You know, when I, when I, the warmth I had in my heart, I remember this old lady that I gave, I gave her shoes. And one of the reporters went there and asked her that, you know, 
how are you doing? And she looked at me and she said, you see this shirt on my back? This is from Ensign. And these shoes right here. And she hugged it to her chest and said, this is also from Ensign. And she turned around and walked to her cardboard box. And I, I mean, I just choked up. And I just thought, wow, I want to do, I want to just something lit a flame. I want to do more of this. I want to do more of this. So I, I'm currently on my 60th mission of North. So I've continued going, traveling up there. And from evacuation centers, they went into temporary housing. <clears throat> and I continued bringing up supplies to them. I continued, um, found the orphanage that needed help. I'm still bringing shoes. We just sent over 55 pairs of shoes for the orphans. I went and bought them and we sent them up. We get the principal to send us uh, shoe sizes and colors that they like. And we get them the best shoes that we can find. So that's what the foundation helps me with too. The foundation helps me chase my happiness and helping people. It's amazing. It's an incredible legacy to have, but is it also, it's something that you have, you can help people and it feels amazing to do that, but it has been over a decade. Like how, why have these people not been able to recover and move on since this has happened? The government's pretty fucked up. I mean, as you guys know, even our U.S. government's fucked up. You know, all governments are. Governments are a mafia that's, that's backed up by the law. That's all it is. I mean, mafia mafia guys or yakuza's aren't. They're just not backed up by the law, and that's all it is. They're they're just as dirty as anyone else. And you know, the Japanese government. You know, they you know, like like for example, the temporary housing people still needed help. Of the eighth year, they're kicked out of the temporary housing and put back into sometimes in some of their houses that were the radiation still hasn't changed. It's only been eight years at the time, and in eight years, you know, Chernobyl. You're, you're talking 60, 70 years before people can even think of moving back there. Mm-hmm. It's only been eight years when they moved them back into the same houses that has the same type of radiation. And you know why they did that? Because they had to raise money for the Olympics. They were putting all their money to the Olympics. I didn't know that. Wow. So for me, I had, you know, for me, the people up north were really against the Olympics because they didn't feel like uh, they should be spending their money on the Olympics. And how 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 interesting is it how karma bites back? You, did you see what happened to their Olympics? I, it I, almost I, got canceled. Oh yeah, yeah. It was like they lost so much money on Olympics because they couldn't allow foreigners in. You know, there's only the athletes. I mean, the Olympics was like it was the biggest failure, I think, and they lost billions of dollars. Yeah, that's you karma. Know, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, that kind of stuff that the the Japanese government does that just doesn't, you know, it's favor the people right now. You know, so uh, I, I'm going to, I believe that my missions up north is going to be probably happening to the day I die, you know. Jeez, that's sad. So I'm, I'm going to change gears a little bit, but that's fantastic to hear. And so I, I really like the fact that, you know, you're actively helping people. Um, you know, that, that's that's what worlds should be all about, really. It's not, you know, for the most part. But, yeah, that's that's really cool. But um, in terms of pride, um, you know, you had – I mean, a lot of people, you know, they attribute the downfall of pride here to the Yokozuna. Um, would, you, would you agree to that? And why is that anyway? 
Well, there was a big problem with. I, I don't know exactly what the problem was, but the problem, what happened with the problem was, it it became public that Pride was working with the Yakuza. Yeah. Okay. It became public. Everybody already mm-hmm. knew. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody knows. I mean, in Japan, every single company, Shuto, Deep, Rising, they're all linked. Yeah. They're all they're all connected to the Yakuza. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows that, but. Once it becomes public, all the sponsors and TV stations can't support it anymore. Yeah. So that that's pretty much the whole problem. Is it something that everybody knew, but it became public? Yeah. And okay. and it's true of Japan that uh, go ahead, Ashley. No, I was going to say. So obviously, you know, um, Pride was some it was an organization that was built on honor and respect, and you know, literally Pride. You know, it was it was based on all those morals and stuff. Um, do you think that was obviously the kind of the cause and effect of it just completely going downhill, just the image of pride more so than, you know, the financial dealings? I think it was just an unfortunate situation. I think, uh, you know, I, 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 the people behind pride, even the people behind rising today, I'm not sure that I can stand and vouch and say that they're people of honor. Maybe they pushed the honor and that pride uh, stance because they felt it was the best way to sell tickets and promote the organization. I mean, I had fighters like me and some other, a lot of the other fighters in there that were fighting with honor and pride, you know. And, you know, the, the, the promoters, you know, they had their, some of them had other agendas. They lied to us, they cheated us, you know. I mean, but I, I'm very grateful that they gave us a platform to show our, our skills, test ourselves, and, you know, a platform to fight for honor. And, and there was a short period in human history when Pride FC was the biggest thing on earth. That was an absolutely incredible show, the size of Pride. And it's Pride only existed 10 years, and we're still talking about Pride. Well, we're, yeah. we're like 15 years on. The thing is, like, think about it like this. Like, Ryzen and Dream combined have existed longer than Pride has. And we still talk about those 10 years of pride. There was something magical about pride. What was it like fighting in this organization, fighting in that kind of golden era of MMA? Well, you know, I think the magical thing about pride was a promotion really did help because they had an amazing production. It felt like you're, you know, the, the opening ceremony, it felt like you're standing in a movie. It was like standing in a movie set, like, whoa. And you, I mean, you know you're not fighting until your time's time in the ring is. You know you know it's just hours before in the opening ceremony, but for some reason that opening ceremony, that music, the way they did that, it just created that adrenaline that you you just started you started shadow boxing, you started stretching. I mean, you, <laughs> the you, theme you music is that, so good. Lit that fire in you, yeah, and you know that and every the thing with the the pride was incredible was. It was still in that era where they didn't have weight classes. All the fighters, they were paying the most money. So all the fighters wanted to fight in Pride. All the UFC fighters wanted to fight in Pride. Pride was where it was. Right now it's the UFC. Yeah. But before, it was Pride, man. I mean, I think it was just the, the type of fighters we had in Pride. It was it was incredible. I mean, we had everybody. And I was lucky just to be the, one of the guys living in Japan, able to be a part of that and they they arguably with the ufc they they saw the success of pride they saw that they had big stars and 
they basically swallowed up Pride, man. They had Shogun. They took they took everyone, man. I mean, Shogun being one of the biggest stars there. But yeah, I mean, how how was it? Like, did it almost make you sad in a way? Because you know, you got this great thing that's happening in Japan. You know, um, almost like a church, yeah. When people would watch fights, because people would be quiet, man. And you know, when they see someone passing guard or you know, getting dropped, like you you cheer then, you know. But there was very very measured in the way they respond to things. It's completely different with an American audience. Uh, was that sad to see? Yeah, I was actually surprised because my whole career was in Japan. The only time I fought was in the UFC 13 when I fought in Augusta, Georgia. And I remember my first, when I went in there, I, you know, any intellectual person knows if I'm from Hawaii, I'm American. Yeah. But when I went in there and fought Royce Alger, I remember hearing a USA call. And it was, I kind of, I heard it during the fight. And I was thinking, these fucking idiots. <laughs> and I was thinking, Who the fuck are they cheering for, USA? They're cheering USA. So, you know. I mean, I you know I go to some you know, and then later on in my career, I actually went and watched uh, some some fights abroad, and it's like they're you know got drunk guys on the side of me that definitely had never fought a day in their life, screaming, "What the fuck, you faggot! Punch him!" You know, they scream this real idiotic things, and you know, and then I, that's when I realized that wow, the Japan crowd's amazing. They're you know you can pretty much hear the cornerman talk. They'll ooh and ah when someone passes guard. You know, they, they're very intellectual and they're real educated about the fight mm-hmm. you know, techniques and systems. So, you know, yeah, it was it was awesome. And, you know, the fans treated you like gods. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was amazing. And, you know, the, you know, the thing is, the fans not only treated like gods, but they were very respectful. Although they were, like, so excited to see you, they would die for an autograph. They still were like, oh, shit, but he's on his personal time. I'll ask it in the most polite way possible, you know. So, it, yeah. it, it was, you know, it's a crazy mixture of how crazy the fans are, manic the fans are, but how respectful they also are. I think it came down to knowledge as well because um, I think you know, Tim was on a well did a live with Todd Atkins uh, yesterday, mm-hmm. and uh, Todd brought up a really good point. Yeah, that you know the the fans were just not more knowledgeable we're talking about actual martial artists and it's completely different to an American crowd. You know, you see an American crowd and, you know, if you see someone pass guard or, you know, uh, you know, how half guard position, they might not respect it as much. Um, Do you feel like with the American, so you mentioned something when they go, Oh, like USA, USA, that hasn't really changed in a way. Cause you got, I don't know if you, uh, well, if you've seen this, but Bilal Muhammad, the last fight he had, uh, they were that. Yeah, that. You know, you know, it's from Chicago, man. What the hell? It's it's freaking it's freaking embarrassing as yeah. an American see that kind of shit happen there. You know, I mean, of course, it's just a few stupid fucks that just ruin it for everybody. You know, I mean, I'm sure the fans are a lot more intellectual now today, but you know what? You're always going to have these stupid drunk idiots that are in there making themselves look stupid. But you were also a guy who put yourself kind of in the range of the idiot fans. You used to post on the Sherdog forums and talk to people there. Why did you put yourself right in the, like, I hate idiot fans. I'm going to go talk to every single one of them right now. Well, I felt, I felt, um, I felt it was something good to reach out to the fans, Mm. you know, and, you know, I, I've also, I've found a way not to really fight with them. Right. 
So if you notice, if there's someone that talks shit about me, I, you know, I kind of pretty much like, oh, wow, I'm sad. I, I kind of feel bad you feel that way. But yeah, maybe I am a fag in your eyes. So that's cool. You know, I, I mean, I try to cushion it. You know, I, 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 I like that interaction because I feel like I feel for myself that I am who I am today. My foundation is successful today only because of what martial arts has done for me. So I'm grateful for people like you guys who promote the art. I'm, pre- I'm grateful for the fans, even if there are some of them are idiots. I'm so grateful for them to, you know, be pro- um, promote the art to what it is today. So, you know, for, for out of that gratefulness, my gratitude that I have isn't artificial. I do seminars around the world because I want to give back to the people who, who help the sport. Um, I communicate on SureDog. And you know, sometimes on the um I think the the MMA TV forum, you know, because I know the fans love to interact with the fighters and most fighters don't interact with the fans. Yeah. And it's it's my way of giving back and making myself available to to say thank you to to be, you know, although some of them might rip on me or call me a fag because they know they'll be on the computer and I can't reach them, you know. Although that thing of shit might happen, I, I still feel it's a part of giving back to the fans that, you know, made the sport what it is and in turn made me who I am today. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so, Ensign, we like, we like to ask this to everyone. Um, and I think it's a really deep question. Um, and, it, you know, it's made a few fires think, actually. Uh, what do you, where do you see yourself in five years' time? Obviously, you're not a fire anymore, but where do you see yourself in five years' time? <clears throat> Um, I see myself, uh, my, my, I, f- I see my braces taking off a lot more. Uh-huh. I, I feel, I see myself being able to offer the highest grade stones at very good prices to my customers. I see myself still doing my volunteer work up north in Japan. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, um, I'm, I'm very content in my life. I'm happy with where I am. I got a freaking awesome wife. I got. And I'm not saying that because she's here. She's <laughs> wife. You know, watch it later. My life is awesome. <laughs> I, I see myself pretty much doing what I'm doing. The only thing that I'm really looking forward to is possibly um, doing some breeding with the koi's on, on like the very good bloodlines. So I I, I, I have a weird passion about the koi's. I, I wanna I drive I drive up I drove up thirty hours last I mean, three hours last week. Just to go in and visit two koi farms to sit and watch them. And I actually told myself I'm only going to get one or two, but I end up coming home with five new ones. Oh, that's nice. You know, I, you know, I, 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 that's the only thing in five, if you ask me about five years, that's something I'm really excited about. I hope that passion can grow and I can get more knowledge in, in, in that, that type of business where, you know, not for the money, but just because I don't know, I, 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 I had I had some coins from the the cheap coins from the home center, and they mistakenly bred. And I I just thought you know there's some eggs on some of these lily plants, so I just thought I pulled out some of those lily plants. Lo and behold, there was over 170 fish on that the eggs on that plant. I wow. raised all 170 of them. Wow, that's amazing. And I hand fed them all, and you know I enjoy that. I, I go to the the pond, and they all come up knowing that I'm going to give them food, stick my hand in, they all come swimming into my hand. So, you know, if you go into my Instagram, it's, I'm still doing it right now, but 
you know, I, I, I just take a lot of, I have a lot of joy doing that, and I, I'm looking forward to bringing in some. I'm buying expensive coins now, getting the top bloodline, and I want to. I kind of dream of having my pond filled with high bloodline coins, you know. Ensign, you are truly the idea of a warrior in a garden, and I absolutely love to see it. You're living well. You're living a good life. Now, we're going to play ourselves out of here. My name's Tim Wheaton, Tim Wheaton MMA, Calf Kick Sports. He is ashmma.cks on Twitter. Ensign, everyone needs to check out. I will put the links below for everything, for Destiny Forever, the link for the book, right. the Ensign Inouye Foundation, all the links, and the Instagram as well. Everything will be down below. But Ensign, you get the last word here. Oh, and one more thing. Next time you come on the show, you need to grow a beard and hair. You look kind of weird between us. <laughs> oh, no shit, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no! It's the other way around. I'm the guest. Oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, we yeah, yeah, we got Yeah, that's <laughs> everybody be shaved. <laughs> you get the last word here. Where can the people find more of us and play us out of here, Ensign? Well, um, I'm on. I'm on all social media. You can reach out to me there. Every every message that I get, I answer myself. Oh, I also have a YouTube channel that I'm covering a lot of my career and. You know, check that out. Give me suggestions on how I can make it better. And last word is I'd like to thank you guys for doing what you guys do for the best sport in the world, MMA. Thank you, man. Thank you so much. Right on, guys. Benson, that was awesome. What up? (laughs) 